Hello, ladies. Thank you for joining us online today as we continue our study of the Gospel of John, where we're looking at Jesus, the living Word. I've been thinking what a privilege it is to be able to study together God's Word in this day and time. I'm Deb Haygood. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and it is a joy for me, and it is a privilege to be uh, with you, to be a part of this Bible study with you. Today we're going to look at chapter 7 of the Gospel of John and we're going to see Jesus going to a feast, a festival. Now we are all familiar with festivals. In fact, if you've lived in Fort Worth very long, then you are aware of Mayfest. Mayfest is Fort Worth's very own festival. It takes place the first weekend in May for four days and it has lots of activities going on. There are live music, there are stages with performing arts, we have a big children's area with games and activities. I've even painted faces there at Mayfest. We have vendors bringing in beautiful arts and crafts, lots of food, lots of fun. That's our Mayfest. Now, this Jewish celebration, this feast that we're looking at today, it is not exactly like Mayfest, but they do have one thing in common, and that is they are both a very joyous, happy, celebratory time. Now, when Jesus shows up for this feast, though, there is much controversy, much confusion, and much division about him. So let's open up to chapter 7, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So Jesus is up north. He is in Galilee. And last week we studied, we saw that he was feeding the 5,000. He was walking on the Sea of Galilee. He was calming the wind and the storm. And we know that it took place close to the time of Passover. Now, Passover takes place in the spring, around March, April. And this feast that we're looking at today, it takes place in October. So six months have passed from the end of chapter 6 to the beginning of chapter 7. Jesus has been up in Galilee during this time. He has been continuing his ministry. He's been spending a great deal of time teaching his 12 apostles, discipling them. And he's up in Galilee because we just read that it was dangerous to be in Jerusalem. The religious leaders there were seeking to kill him. Now, Jerusalem is down south. It's in that area called Judea. And Jerusalem is the capital city. This is where the temple is located. This is the hub of religious activity. And from chapter 7 on we are going to see that the dislike for Jesus from the Jewish religious leaders is going to intensify into extreme hatred. In fact, we're going to see it ramp up today in this chapter 7, and then it gets more intense next week with chapters 8 and 9 and 10 and on to the cross. But first, let's talk a little bit about the Feast of Booths. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles, and tabernacle means to dwell. This is one of the three great Jewish feasts, and they celebrate it for a whole week. And it's a happy feast. It's a time of thanksgiving for the fall harvest. And they also remember and they thank God for his provision for their ancestors in that 40 years of wilderness wandering. 
Many build booths during this time out of branches, and they would even live in them all week long as they remembered their ancestors in the wilderness. And I have some pictures. If we put up the first picture, there you see a booth that this is how it might have looked in Jesus' day, built of palm branches, um, a little little booth where they could have lived in, and they would stay in that, remembering their ancestors in the wilderness. And then I have another picture you might be interested in knowing that religious Jews today still celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, and they still build booths. This is a booth in someone's backyard. Now, I've seen pictures where they would have these booths on their balconies if they lived in apartments, or they would be in alleys in big cities, and they would stay in there remembering this Feast of Tabernacles. And then many of you know Pinterest. Pinterest is where we go when we want to know how to make something snappy and trendy and up to date. So Pinterest even has a booth for the Feast of Tabernacles. And there you see that picture. That's kind of a little joke there. I threw that in, but this is true. Pinterest has a booth for the Feast of Tabernacles. So let's go on and we're going to read verse 3. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So we know that Jesus had four half-brothers and some half-sisters. They were the children of Mary and Joseph born after Jesus. Jesus was the son of Mary and the son of God. And so we read these brothers' names in the Gospel of Mark. I put it on your verse sheet so you could know their names. Chapter 6, verse 3. This is someone talking about Jesus, and he says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So these are Jesus' half-brothers, and we see that they are urging him to go to Jerusalem for the feast work his miracles. They're kind of saying, get out there in the big city, kind of like going to Times Square in New York. Get out there and show yourself to the world. Now, it's not really clear if they're mocking him, sort of taunting him, being sarcastic, or if they sincerely want to help him, maybe help him get some more followers, or maybe they just want to see Jesus work a big miracle. You know, with four half-brothers, there could have been many motivations. But the one thing we do know from verse 5 is that his half-brothers didn't believe in him as the Messiah. So they were urging him to go from their unbelief. They didn't understand Jesus. They didn't really know who he was. Now I have a little aside, the good news. Later in the book of Acts chapter 1, we see that the brothers do believe in Jesus as the Son of God. In fact, two books in the New Testament, James and Jude, are written by Jesus' half-brothers. So let's look how Jesus answers them. Verse 6, you go up to the, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So Jesus says, I'm not going. It's not the right time for me. Jesus is dependent on God's perfect timing and his perfect will. You go on. The world doesn't hate you, but it hates me. The world 
that word there means the evil system that's going on in the world. And it also can refer to the unbelievers in the world, those who reject God's word and his son, Jesus. Jesus is not motivated by his unbelieving brothers, though. He is motivated by the will of his father. Jesus, we see, is totally committed to the will and the timetable of his father. You know, we may experience negative words and actions and attitudes, but even so, we need to follow the Lord anyway. Many of us have been mocked or ridiculed for our beliefs in Jesus. Sometimes it's your own families that make fun of you or even worse. But even though it's difficult, even though it's hard, we need to stay committed to him. We need Jesus to be our example. And we need to wait on the Lord's perfect timing for you. God's timing is perfect. You know, I ask God for many things, good things, even eternal things, and I have to wait on him. And that's hard for me. I'm impatient. I don't really want to wait on the Lord. I want my timing, which would be my will, not God's will. I need to wait on God, God's perfect timing, God's will. I read a great quote from William Barclay about impatience. He says, impatience of man must learn to wait on the wisdom of God. So ladies, walk with Jesus and wholeheartedly cooperate with God's plans. God has good plans for you and his timing is perfect. I have a couple verses to try to encourage us to wait on the Lord. Uh, Psalms 27, this is David speaking. He says, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Wait can mean eagerly anticipating God's goodness. And then Isaiah tells us in 30, 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait. Blessed are those who eagerly anticipate God's goodness for him. Let's go on and read verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. <clears throat> so now <clears throat> the timing is right. And Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the feast. But he goes quietly, privately. He doesn't want to uh, draw attention to himself as he enters Jerusalem. The religious leaders are looking for him, we see, and it's not to give him a pat on the back. Their intent is hostile. And we see the people in the crowds talking about him, and some are saying, oh, he's a good man. And others are saying, no way, he is a deceiver. But the one thing we see here, there is much controversy. They're muttering. They're grumbling. It's contentious talk. In fact, did you notice how many different reactions to Jesus we see in this chapter? The half-brothers are unbelieving. We see people that are saying, good man, oh, no way, he's a deceiver. Totally different opinions. Much controversy. But the one thing in common, they are all whispering, talking behind their hands. They don't want the religious leaders to know they're talking about Jesus. That might uh, cause them to be taken into custody and to uh, question. So they're whispering about him. 
Let's go on to look at verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So now it's the middle of the feast. A couple days have passed and Jesus goes into the temple courtyard. He's uh, being seen here and he begins to teach. And this is really quite a uh, common practice for the rabbis, the Old Testament teachers. They would go into the temple courtyard and they would teach the Old Testament scriptures. Now, these uh, Jewish teachers, rabbis, they had been to schools, rabbinical schools, and were taught the scriptures. And some of them would even be discipled a one-on-one by a great learned rabbi. And so when they taught, they quoted the thoughts of these great rabbis. But Jesus begins to teach, and they are astounded by his knowledge and his command of scripture. It's unlike anything they have ever heard. And imagine, imagine Jesus explaining something from the Old Testament. Jesus, the Son of God, the living word is explaining the written word. Amazing. I can hardly wait to get to glory one day and sit at Jesus' feet as he explains all the things in scripture that I never really quite understood. It'll be marvelous. We can picture their astonishment at his teaching. They're saying, how can he know all this when he's never studied at any rabbinical school? He's never studied any, under any great master teacher. From whose authority is he teaching these things? You know, here's another opinion. He's a great teacher, but yet they fail to recognize who he is. They're asking, whose authority is he teaching under? So let's read how Jesus answers them. Verse 16, he says, my teaching is not mine. But his who sent me, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. So Jesus says, my teaching is from God. And if you really have a sincere desire to do God's will, then you'll know my teaching is from God. I'm not seeking my own glory, but I'm seeking to glorify God. The teacher who wants to bring God glory, he's true. If a teacher seeks his own glory, he is false. So two things we learn here from Jesus's words. He says, if you believe in Jesus and if you really seek to understand God's word, that sincere desire, the Holy Spirit will confirm it to you. But faith is the prerequisite, faith. And the second thing we learned that if you hear someone teaching the scripture for their own glory, Jesus says, that's a false teacher. A true teacher wants God to be glorified. So be discerning, be discerning. Let's go on and look at verse 19 as Jesus continues. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. So the crowd here, that word refers to all the people that have come into Jerusalem for this festival. They don't live there. They've just come in to celebrate the festival. And they don't know that the religious leaders are seeking to kill him. So they say Jesus has a demon. But Jesus goes on. He says, I did one work and you all marvel at it. 
Now the one work Jesus is talking about here is that miracle that we studied two weeks ago when Misty told us about Jesus healing the man at the pool of Bethsaida. The man was there, he was uh, paralyzed or invalid and he couldn't get into the water to be healed. And so Jesus comes up to him and he says, stand up, roll up your bedroll and walk. And the man does, he's healed. He's totally healed and made whole. And all the Pharisees could talk about was how Jesus had worked on the Sabbath. His healing, they said, was work on the Sabbath. And that is when their hatred for him began. So Jesus is going to bring up circumcision to point out their arrogant hypocrisy. Look at verse 22. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? He's pointing out here that they are hypocritical in this hatred of him. Every Jewish baby boy, by law, was to be circumcised on the eighth day. So when he was eight days old, he would be circumcised. And if this eighth day fell on the Sabbath, then they would circumcise him anyway. They would perform the circumcision. So he's saying, if you work on the Sabbath to do a circumcision, why are you so angry that I healed a man on the Sabbath, that I made him whole? And he goes on in verse 24, and I want you to look at this verse very carefully because I think for me, maybe this is the key verse for the whole chapter. Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Do not judge by appearances, judge with right judgment. Jesus explains to these Jewish leaders, your self-righteous legalism, your superficial understanding of scripture, Their hostility towards God's own son had blinded them to the truth of God. They were in darkness. They were making wrong judgments. Jesus is saying, be discerning. Know the truth. It was a call for them to see Jesus for who he really is, the son of God, the Messiah, the one who came to save them. He says, turn away from your superficial prejudice and receive me. Receive Jesus So far in this chapter, we've seen everyone using superficial judgment in their unbelief. The half-brothers who are saying, go do a miracle. The people that are whispering and saying, he's a good man. No, he's a deceiver. Even these in the crowd that are saying, you have a demon. All of them judging by appearances in their unbelief. So let's go on, look at verse 25 as the conversations continue at the temple. Verse 25 says, some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, okay, now let me just stop and explain. This group of people, the people of Jerusalem, they're the ones who live in Jerusalem. They're from Jerusalem. So they're at the feast, but they would have known about Jesus um, healing this invalid man. And they would also know about the Pharisees and religious leaders wanting to kill Jesus. And so they say, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. 
So here we see more confusion. These people are looking around, and from verse 26, it would seem that the Pharisees and the leadership have been totally silenced by Jesus' example of circumcision. They're not saying anything to them. And so the people are thinking, hey, wait a minute. Do they really think this is the Christ? But then someone pipes up and says, well, no, because we know where he comes from. And when the Messiah comes, we'll not know where he comes from. This was a false assumption that they had that the Messiah would just suddenly appear. And they got that assumption by misinterpreting an Old Testament passage. So more superficial judgment, more wrong judgment. They are talking in their confusion. And Jesus answers them by saying, I am sent by the true one, God, but you don't know him. I know him because he sent me. He sent me. If they don't recognize Jesus, they don't know God because Jesus came to reveal the Father. We learned that back in chapter 1 of John. Verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is talking about Jesus. He has made him known. Jesus came to reveal the Father. And so if you don't recognize Jesus, you don't know his Father. So let's go on. Look at verse 30. It says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now, we don't know, but it's possible that they were supernaturally uh, unable to arrest Jesus because this was not his time to be arrested. That would be coming later, not this time. But what we do know that we read in verse 31, many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? That is a rhetorical question, and the answer is no. No, no one is going to do more miracles than this man. No one is going to teach better than this man. This is the Messiah. He is who he says he is, the Son of God, and they believed Now, you got to know, this is going to upset the religious leaders in a big way. And so look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now, when it says chief priests there, that is mainly referring to the Sadducees. This is another uh, Jewish religious group. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they didn't really get along because they had some big doctrinal differences, but they're willing to work together to arrest Jesus. And so they send out the officers. Now that would be the temple guard. And the temple guard was made up of Levites. Those were the Jewish men who kind of took care of things in the um, temple and they would have gone out. They wouldn't have called the Roman soldiers. First of all, they didn't have authority to call the Roman soldiers, nor would they have wanted Rome to be involved. So Jesus says to these officers, verse 33, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So Jesus is saying here, my time is short, and it was, because in six months, this is October, six months would be the next Passover, kind of April. And at that Passover, Jesus would be arrested, he would be crucified, resurrected, and he would ascend to the Father. And as unbelievers, they would never be able to go there. 
Once again, the leadership is confused and they are judging superficially. They are blinded to the spiritual truth. They're looking at the physical. Where's he going? What's happening? Is he going to talk to the Greeks? Um, how, why does he say we won't be able to find him? They're just looking at the physical, totally blinded to the spiritual truth. Ladies, do not judge from superficial appearances, but judge from sincere devotion to the truth. Be discerning. Be discerning. And discernment comes from believing in Jesus, the living word, and from studying and knowing the written word, the Bible. Be discerning. It means apply what you know to your life. Be discerning. Believe in the living word. Study and know the written word and apply it to your life. One of my favorite verses, Psalm 119, 105, says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. There are many, many verses and scriptures that point us to the truth of the word. Know the word. That's what you're doing. You're studying the word right now. Apply it to your life. Be discerning. So now we come to the last day of the Feast of Booths, the last day of this week-long celebration. And I want to give a little more um, background to the Feast of Booths before we go on. Um, the feast was cel celebrated with lighting great lamps at the temple. And Lynn is going to talk about that next week with chapter 8 and 9. Um, but another celebration involved water. So every morning, they, a priest would go down to the pool of Siloam, and they would draw water in a golden urn, and then they would walk back through the streets, and they would pour the water out next to the altar. And all along the way, people would be lining up in the streets and they would be celebrating. And it was a joyous, happy time. And they did this every day. And they would shout out the uh, Bible verse from Isaiah 12, 3. And it says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So there were three things, really, that the water symbolized in this whole um, activity. One, it symbolized the water that God provided for their ancestors in that 40-year wilderness wandering, especially the time when Moses struck the rock and water came gushing out to give water to the people. Secondly, it also symbolized the blessing of adequate rainfall on the crops. They needed rainfall. Water is necessary for physical life. And then third, it also, uh, symbolized, the it also um, symbolized the anticipation of the one who was coming, the Messiah, the Savior who was to come, and there would be rivers of living water. So in the midst of this, let's look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this is the last day of the feast, and we see Jesus stands up and he cries out. With that action, he is saying, hey, this is important. Listen to me. Listen to me. And Jesus then gives this invitation. If anyone thirsts, come to me. Drink. Drink. Whoever believes, living water will flow from his heart. Jesus is saying, if you recognize your need, if you're thirsty, come to me. 
receive me, accept me, believe in me, and drink. That's receive salvation, eternal life, that living water so you will be satisfied and thirst no more. Jesus' invitation is pointing to the fact that he, Jesus, is the fulfillment of the one that they're anticipating at the Feast of Booths. He's saying, I'm here. I'm the one who permanently satisfies. I give eternal life. Jesus gave this same invitation to the Samaritan woman at the well. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And it's the gospel invitation today. If you have a need, a soul craving for something, Jesus says, come to me, drink. I have what you need to satisfy forever with eternal life. You know, if you are here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus and your soul is thirsty, needy, something's missing inside you, you feel empty, believe in Jesus Believe in Jesus. He will satisfy you forever and ever and ever with eternal life. Believe in him today. Believe today. And then you will have that living water inside you. That is the Holy Spirit. That's what um, he's talking about there when he says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That living water is the Holy Spirit. And John goes on to explain that the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit would happen after Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven. And we can read all about it. It happens on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And so for us today, the moment we believe in Jesus and accept him, the Holy Spirit indwells us and nothing can change that. So let's look at the people's reactions. Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. So now we see division. People kind of falling into two camps. Some are saying he is the one Moses uh, talked about in Deuteronomy, the prophet, the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. But others are doubting. You know, there's always going to be some who will find some reason to doubt Jesus. They reject him and they say, but wait a minute. We know this guy comes from Galilee and the Messiah is going to come from the line of David and be born in Bethlehem. Now that is true. They at least got the scripture right. But what they don't realize is that although Jesus grew up in Nazareth in Galilee, he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, because his mother's line, Mary's line, goes back to David. She is descended from David. Jesus is from the line of David. If they had looked past the superficial at the truth, they would have realized this. And so now we have division, those who reject Jesus as the Son of God and those who believe in Jesus, accept Jesus as the Son of God. And then I love this next part, verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. 
I love this. Okay, the officers, that's the temple guard. They were made up of Levites who were religiously trained. They knew the scriptures. And so they were interested in what Jesus had to say. And they come back without arresting Jesus because they say, have you heard this man? Have you heard him? No one has ever spoken like him before. The words of Jesus has touched their hearts. And maybe I think some of them may have actually believed in Jesus as their savior. But the religious leaders, they are outraged. They seem like they're in a panic. They are shouting and calling names. And before we read, I just got to tell you um, this story about my kids when they were little. Rachel uh, was probably about six, and so Ben would have been about four. And we were in the car driving to a friend's house, and they are in a big debate. Uh, I don't remember the debate, but it was probably something like, what's healthier, milk or orange juice? And so because Rachel was older, she could make her points better, and she was kind of winning the debate. And Ben was getting more and more frustrated because he, he just couldn't think of the words that he wanted to say to make his point. And so in frustration, he just stops and says, well, you're ugly. <laughs> And I started laughing. I cracked up laughing. I, and Rachel's furious. And I'm laughing because it had nothing to do with the debate. But Ben was so frustrated, he just resorts to name calling. And I'm pretty sure at some point I said, hey, Ben, that's not nice. You know, don't call names. Um, we don't name call. And besides, it has nothing to do with what you were trying to say. This is what the Pharisees and the religious leaders, this is what it seems like they're doing in this. Look what it says here. The Pharisees answered them saying, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. They're saying, hey, what are you guys? What, what? You're ugly. No one who's anybody is believing in Jesus. No one who's educated or know the scriptures. No one sort of like them who is uh, in a place of status and fame. None of them are believing Jesus only the crowd. They don't know anything. They're stupid. They're ugly. And so Nicodemus has to jump in here. The religious leaders in their anger and their arrogance and self-righteous pride, they're blinded to the truth. They're making a superficial wrong judgment, not one made with righteousness. They've lost all reason. So Nicodemus in verse 50 says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Okay, so you remember Nicodemus. He is the one that went to Jesus in chapter three. He was a Pharisee, but he went to talk to Jesus, find out about him. And it would seem here, we're not sure that he believes in Jesus, but we do know at the end of John, he does come to believe in Jesus as the son of God. But here at least he's kind of um, standing up for him. He's saying, hey guys, we have laws that say give the guy a chance to explain before we condemn him. And once again, before he's even finished his thought, the Pharisees jump in and begin to ridicule him and name calling, name call him. They say, you're ugly. They say, are you from Galilee? Okay, that's the same as saying you're ugly because they had a great prejudice against those up north in Galilee. They thought of the Galileans as um, uneducated, illiterate. They didn't know the word of God. And so in their prejudice, that would be a really big cut down to say, are you from Galilee? And then they say something that is totally wrong. No prophet arises from Galilee. 
Now they would know Elijah came from Galilee, Jonah, Hosea, those prophets came from Galilee. And they should have seen Jesus is the son of God who came to save them. When Jesus came to earth, he fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies. He was from the line of David. He was born in Bethlehem. He is the prophet that Moses was talking about in Deuteronomy and many, many other prophecies in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled them all when he came to earth. They should have seen that. They should have understood. Ladies, don't misunderstand who Jesus is. He is God. He died for us. He saves us from eternal separation with God. He is with us. He loves us. Trust in the one who gives eternal life. Cling to the only one who satisfies and gives eternal life, Jesus. So let's finish up here with one last story, and it's the beginning of chapter 8. Um, this story kind of is an example, an application for everything we've just learned here in chapter 7. So let's begin with verse 1. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. So it's the next day, early in the morning, and Jesus has gone back to the temple to teach, and... There's a crowd around them, and the religious leaders show up with this woman caught in adultery, and they kind of push their way right to the front and put that woman right in front of him. Now, we know it takes two people to commit adultery, but somewhere along the line, they've lost the man, so this begins to look like a setup. And in fact, it was. We just read, this was uh, a, to trap Jesus. If Jesus rejects the law of Moses, you know, says, don't stone her, then his credibility is gone. And if he says stoner, then his reputation for compassion and forgiveness would be in question by the crowd, by all of those there. Now, these religious leaders did not care about the law. They did not care about this woman. She is just a pawn in their scheme. They're probably got their arms folded and they're smirking because they think they have backed Jesus into a corner. And so Jesus bends down and he writes in the dirt. He doesn't answer them. It kind of looks like he ignores them. He's not looking at them. And then he stands up and he speaks. Look at verse seven. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So what is Jesus writing in the dirt? This question has been asked millions of times down through the ages. And no one knows what he was writing. All kinds of thoughts out there. Some people say he's writing the Ten Commandments. Others think he was writing an Old Testament scripture verse. Maybe he was writing each man's sin. 
he would have known their hearts. Something like, stole a golden plate from the temple, lied about tithing to God, slept with so-and-so's wife. We don't know what he wrote, but we know that he's not saying that the law of Moses is wrong. Instead, Jesus is saying, if you want to get serious about the law of Moses, begin with the sin in your own life. And Jesus's authoritative words convict their hearts of their own sin. And they all begin to walk away one by one until only Jesus is left, the only sinless one there. And then we read in verse 10, Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, and that's a title of respect, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus is not saying to her, the law doesn't matter or sin doesn't matter. On the contrary, sin does matter. And the law points out that we are all sinners. None of us are perfect. We all sin. We all stand condemned before God. But Jesus puts the cross between you and your sin. Jesus took the penalty of our sin and died on the cross, shedding his blood. And Jesus wants to put the cross between this woman and her sin. He says, go and leave your life of sin. Jesus rebukes sin, but he graciously gives the woman hope for a new life. I hope that as she saw Jesus, that she realized he is the son of God, the one who came to earth to dwell among us, full of grace and truth, that she believed in him from that point. Remember, God hates sin, but he loves sinners. Jesus is the answer to sin. Jesus is the answer. I don't wanna be quick to point out the wrongdoing of others, and yet be blind to the sin in my own life? That's hypocrisy. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Instead, when confronted with sin, my own sin or other sin, instead of condemning, I wanna see the need and the opportunity for forgiveness. Jesus is the answer to sin. I wanna point others to sin, I, to Jesus. I wanna go to Jesus. Sinners need Jesus. We all need Jesus. The gracious, forgiving love and work of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the living word and for the written word. Father, that Jesus came to die for us, that we might have a relationship with you. Father, thank you for these words of life. Lord, I pray that each of us would lean into you, cling to you, that we would be discerning, that we would apply the truth of your word to our lives. Lord, make us people that point to you in all occasions. We love you, Lord. Bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.